pass those plates. Um, hey, another question. How, how many of you, it's, I've been surprised how many people that I've talked to, um, I said, like, you know, highlight of your, of your Christmas season or, or just memorable, and almost all of them involved, uh, the flu went through our house. How many of you, sickness was in your home, this, this, like, tons of people, right? It went through our house. Uh, I, I dodged the bullet, but like almost everyone else got sick, and it's just, man, that, that makes for some long days. Um, but it was fun. It was, it was just a fun time. Um, we've got four young kids, and they're at the stage where they're just, I mean, Christmas is so exciting. You know, every little thing, like, you know, getting the lights up on the house is so exciting, and getting the tree up, and, and them being able to put their, their specific ornament on the tree is just, you know, it's a big deal, and I think one of the takeaways for me was just, you know, sitting Christmas Eve morning before we came to church, we opened up our presents, and we were down in the basement, we had a little tree set up, and the kids are opening their presents, and, you know, we're videotaping, and, and just thinking of, like, memories, you know, how we grew up, and, you know, some of those Christmas seasons, those Christmas days that we had, and, um, you know, I was thinking about memories. How, how many of you grew up in a church where you used, and this is not a Bible, because most, most churches use those, but this, this is a hymnal. How many of you grew up in a church where you used one of these? Okay, show him. Wow, that's a, that, that's a lot of us. Um, I grew up in a church when it was like, it was just going like out, you know what I mean? So they were sitting there, right? They're always like in the back of the pew, you know, but like I would use them to write on like a hard surface and I was, you know, doodling or, you know, drawing when the sermon was boring or taking notes when it was good. Um, but it was kind of one of those things that, that, that sat there. How many of you know, if you were to open a hymnal up, if you were to look at the beginning, you know, because there's, there's dozens, there's hundreds of, of songs and hymns in here, but that in the table of contents, it's actually uh, carefully organized and, and, and put together by theme. How many of you knew that? Okay, a lot of you knew that. And so, as you look in the table of contents, you can see all these different topics and themes, um, you know, things that center around uh, prayer, uh, evangelism, songs of thanksgiving, uh, hymns of, uh, of the incarnation, of the birth of Jesus, uh, hymns of guidance. How many of you know that Israel had a hymn book? We call it the Psalms. And did you know that this book, likewise, it, it, it was organized not, not so much by theme, but it, it was carefully arranged, but the divisions were to mirror the history of its people. Not, not all the history, but pretty much from, from, from King David to, to the time when Babylon came in and, and took all the people, Jerusalem fell, and they took the people into exile, all the way to when this small remnant of people were able to come back to their destroyed capital city. And, and it was after that period that, that they really started collecting all of these psalms and they said, let's get a book. Let's put it together. And, and they organized this book to, to kind of mirror this history. And so as you go through early on, a lot of songs of, of David. And, and later on, you see even this assumption that the great city, Jerusalem, has fallen. And, and so how do we live our lives now in this sense? Um, and it's here that many, many of the psalms or, or the songs began to function for Israel a little bit Kind of like what happened in America's history and what has, been ref what has been referred to as the old Negro spirituals. These are the old songs sung by an oppressed 
and marginalized people who, who sang and prayed for freedom from their God. Listen to some of the words, um, hold your light, was one of the old spirituals. It, uh, hold your light, Brother Robert, hold your light, hold your light on Canaan's shore. Or another one, bound to go. Jordan River, I'm bound to go. Bound to go, bound to go, Jordan River, I'm bound to go, and bid him fare ye well. Another one, my army cross over. I love this one. My army cross over, my army cross over. Oh, Pharaoh's army drown, but my army cross over, <laughs> right? But you look at these themes, what they're drawing on Pharaoh's army, Jordan's river, Canaan's shores, borrowed images used with, with, with rich, rich metaphors. And, and the purpose of them were to, were to orient themselves in a world which was threatening to completely disorient them and their story, a world which was threatening to, to rewrite their story and to make it a tragedy. Psalm 23 is, is one of the most uh, beautifully reorienting psalms that is out there about what, what does it look like, what might it look like if I were to live life in the kingdom here and now, borrowing again from some, some very well-worn images and metaphors. And would you do this with me? I want us to read together the 23rd Psalm. A lot of us will know it. And actually, what I want to do is each week, I want us to read the psalm from a, from a different translation. Tonight, we're going to be reading from the King James Version, okay? And we'll have it up on the screens. Would you read this with me? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I, do, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever that's beautiful isn't it so many of us know these words as this beautifully constructed psalm and you know we can we can affirm these words we can savor them we can meditate upon them we can engrave them upon upon plates or upon different images that that we put up but a question still remains how how do i live in response to them because I would suggest here over the next few minutes what I want to talk about is that this is actually not, not just a very, it's, it's not a kind of a bedtime poem to read. It's a subversive story to the world that we normally live. It's a, it's a subversive psalm to, to the self even, how I, by default, tend to live my life. This is a song which orients our lives to kingdom living. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take tonight and the next five weeks and, and we're going to walk through the, this well-worn psalm, this, this old song, and explore what, what does it mean to live as though God is actually my shepherd? Like, what, what would that look like in my life? What might have to change? So take a look at it, if you would, with me. We're just going to look at verse 1 tonight. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Okay, let's, let's just stop there for one second. 
it's interesting the word that David uses here in, in, in choosing this word, the Lord is my shepherd. So far, like if you go through the whole psalm you know, book, this is the most comprehensive metaphor. It's the most intimate metaphor that David has employed yet. He's used you know, metaphors like king. Um, he's used things like deliver. He's even used like impersonal things like he's, um, he's my rock or he's my shield. Okay? But, but he gets to this, and so far, this is the most intimate metaphor that David has used. Anyone know the very first shepherd in, in the Bible? Any guesses? Who'd you guess? Who's the very first keeper of sheep that we read about in Scripture? Oh, man, I thought that'd be harder. Good job. Abel, yeah. Abel was the very first shepherd in all of Adam's son, Cain's brother. Abel is the very first shepherd. Now, shepherding over time comes to um, be a bit of a blue-collar profession, okay? Um, as people move to, to uh, farming, it becomes things that, okay, you know, they give that job to their son, and then, well, they hire someone to do it. They give it to their children. So it becomes kind of a blue-collar job. But, but there's a rich tradition, a rich history of shepherding in Israel. Um, in fact, the primary occupation of the ancient Israelites um, in the days of the patriarchs was shepherding. You've got guys like, like uh, Moses, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, David. These were all shepherds. And so this, this image, the concept of being a shepherd, takes on this very kind of robust, rich, well-worn concept, and it evokes their imagination. And it draws kind of on like their collective experience as a people. You know, shepherds were among the very first to, to visit Jesus, and I think for a significant reason. But the primary duties of a shepherd, as you think about it, is, is to provide and protect. I mean, we could probably just put it in those two categories, to provide and protect. It was to pasture the flock. It was to lead them in the right way when they had to move. It was to fend off predators. And so because of this kind of leadership, care, protective role, in the ancient world, uh, shepherd actually became a, a metaphor to speak of not only God, but, but even human leaders. And they could be political leaders, they could be spiritual leaders. And it even came to have like royal connotations to it. Um, in fact, Homer, the ancient Greek writer, in, in, in Homer's Iliad, uh, he frequently called kings and governors shepherds. So this is used in the ancient world as a concept of leadership, the person who is to guide us. Um, in fact, the word pastor is, comes from the Latin word where we get uh, shepherd from. Listen to Psalm 78, 58. Speaking of, of Egypt, this is some language from, from God speaking of his relationship to Israel when, when he took them out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. He says, um, but he, speaking of God, but he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the wilderness. So a shepherd doesn't just feed his sheep, though, reality, right? I mean, think about all the things. You know, God's using this metaphor. Think about all the things. If you've ever read the story about these 40 years in the wilderness where God is directing and guiding his people, he's not just feeding. He, I mean, his job is not just to drop food at their feet, is it? There's, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty complex picture of, of leadership and what it means. He guides them. He disciplines them at times. He encourages them. He has to protect them. He, he trains them. 
Well, thinking about God being a shepherd, do you know the primary way that God wants to guide, discipline, protect, train on and on his followers? How does he do that with us? Listen to, uh, listen to how the Apostle Paul in the New Testament answers this question in his second letter to a young man named Timothy who was pastoring or shepherding. He said, all scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament scripture, he's referring to what they have in the writings, all scripture, the Bible, it's God-breathed. And listen to what he says its purpose is. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those are shepherding words, you guys. He's saying, this is the way that I am going to, to shepherd you in your life, guide you and direct you, is by Scripture. This is his primary way that, that God will do it. And for me to call God shepherd, I think, means at least two things. Number one, it means that I'm in the presence of Scripture, right? Um, question, kind of as you start into a new year. Are, are you in the presence of the Bible? Do the leaves of the pages of the Bible get turned in yours? Are, are you in the presence so that you even have the ability to hear his voice like a sheep would? I mean, are, are we even around him enough to know his voice? Because, see, no one can read your Bible for you. No one can read my Bible for me. Um, you remember before we, before we broke here, kind of for the Christmas season, we took a, a week and we talked about the, this new tool called Engage. It, it's this online tool. And Pastor Deary, if you were here this last weekend, he talked about, you know, we were kind of like the, we were like the test rats, right? You know, we tried it out. Um, Pastor Deary is going to be uh, kind of presenting this to the whole, whole uh, weekend congregation coming up here this Saturday night and, and Sunday. And the reason we're investing in that is because we think if I'm not in the presence of the shepherd, there's, there's so little chance that I, will, that I will know his voice when I need to hear it. When I need to make a big decision about a job, when I need to make a big decision about a relationship, when I need to get through another day that is so hard that I don't know if I can. Do I even know his voice? Am I in his presence? But secondly, um, to be or to call God shepherd means that I'm under the authority of that. Meaning, like, I'm, I'm submitting to the authority of that thing. If, if you were to be obedient to the Bible as best you know it, okay, would you have to change anything in your life? I, I asked myself that question, and I, like, I, I came up with a list. I mean, I started going, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, you know. Um, yeah, I think we would. If I honestly asked myself the question, if I were absolutely obedient, if I said he is the shepherd, meaning he calls the shots, he is the good shepherd, cosmic shepherd, what would I have to do differently? How would I have to think differently? What things would I have to pursue differently? How would I have to answer this email differently? How, I mean, tons of things that I think, you know, realistically, I really would have to do differently. See, calling God shepherd means being in his presence and submitting to his authority. And again, that comes primarily through scripture. And all the rest of Psalm 23, as we read this over the next five weeks, it really depends upon these first five words being true. I don't just mean true as in, yes, they're personally true for me, that I would call him my shepherd and that that is his role, that I have stepped into this role of, uh, of a sheep, one who submits to the shepherd. Because see, 
when that's true in my life, when I respond to God as the cosmic shepherd, um, and I experience this presence and submission through scripture, um, the rest of the psalm paints a picture for me of my life. And you guys, this I want this so badly. Because I don't always have this. Listen to what it talks about. It says, when this, when this happens, when you're in this role of shepherd, explains, um, that, that I will experience a life without want for, verse 2, food and drink. Verse 3, strength, guidance. Verse 4, a life without want of comfort, uh, satisfaction. Verse 5, verse 6, life itself. Because that's the rest of it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, now, what does that mean, right? Does that mean that I just have everything? That, you know, like it's just all sitting in front of me, so I don't even, I don't even have the ability to want because all my needs are, are met in the sense of all these little things that I'm thinking about? No, I think it's going in a different direction. The Bible talks a lot about the place of being in a state of want. The heart, the soul, constantly wanting. And so in verse 1 it says, I shall not be in want. This is a picture of, of uh, rest. That's a biblical word for this concept. Israel, remember he said, I will give you a land when they were traveling through Egypt. And he said, I will finally give you a land. And he says, and it's going to be a place of rest. Now as soon as they got in there, they were working their tails off. They were doing tons of stuff. They spent years pushing the others out, doing a building. So it doesn't mean kicking your feet up. But it's, it's, a, it's a heart, soul, rest place of saying, I may be in an absolute storm in my life. I may be the busiest I've, I've ever been. But there's this inner rest in my life where I'm not in this constant state of want. Okay? So what does that mean to not be in a state of want? Well, let me tell you first what I think it does not mean. But I think is kind of a common pitfall for sometimes how, how Christians can view this when they think about it. Um, what it doesn't mean is that you should kill desire. Just stop wanting, right? Don't desire anything. How, how many of you have tried that? Yeah, yeah, we've all, yeah. Don't want anything. Just, just kill all want, kill all desire in your life, and you'll never be disappointed, right? <laughs> Aim low, <laughs> and you're never disappointed. Um, that's not Christianity. That's Buddhism. Buddhism has this idea that if you stop desiring everything, you will never suffer again which is true on one level. The problem is, what if you were made to desire? That's the greatest suffering of all, isn't it? C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love this. He says, see, the problem, it's not that God finds our desires too strong, right? Like he's saying, you know, just stop wanting. God finds our desires too weak. He says, we fool around with all these small things and we put them at the center, you know, home, car, relationship, job, achievement, success, power, beauty, attractiveness, sexuality, whatever, all God-given things. But we pursue them, we put our whole heart in, and he says, that, that's weak desire. Sure, I gave it to you, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and true, and it's for you, but that's too weak. If that's the end of your desire, if your desire ends there, it'll be too weak. It is too small for you. And so what you'll find is that all these little things will not fill you up. They will not fill me up. So it's not stopping desire. It's really a matter of um, what do you desire first? Have you heard the old phrase, put first things first and second things second, right? We've heard that before. That's this concept. Putting first things first and second things second, you get both, right? 
You put second things first and first things second, you get neither one of them. That's the story of scripture when it talks about this idea of wanting, of pursuing God. Pursuing his righteousness first and then all the other things being added, right? That's that concept, this kingdom concept. Because see, when we do this, when we pursue all the little things, like all the, all the little good, true and beautiful things, they're great. But when we put them at the center, it's like drinking salt water. My, uh, my wife over the break here was watching this, this uh, TV show about the uh, Indianapolis, the ship that, that, that sunk and all, and all these um, military soldiers who, who, who died. And there were, um, I think, 1,200 or something like that. And there were like 300 who lived at the end. And they were out there for so long because no one knew that the ship had sunk. And one of the big, you know, and there's, it's like, you know, supposedly the biggest shark attack in, in history. And it's just, I mean, it's, I, I hate sharks after that. You want to, like, just go, you know, kill them. Who cares if they go extinct, right? They're awful. But they said that one of the most dangerous things, as dangerous as sharks, was drinking the salt water. And the people and the men were taught, do not drink the salt water because it will just make you more insatiably thirsty. And they were telling stories, people who were there, they said, what was so hard is it's like all around me, though. It's, it's wet, it's liquid, it's water, <laughs> and it's right here. And I'm dying of thirst, and there's water lapping up on my face, and I, you know, soaked in my clothes and all this stuff. And I think that's kind of a picture, but when we pursue the, the little good, true, and beautiful things, we, put them, we take the second things and we put them first, it's like a drink of salt water. It kind of it quenches my thirst at first, but the problem is I'm that much more thirsty, and I just become insatiable in my thirst. Um, see, the kind of water which, which Jesus had in mind is not salt water, but maybe we were made for a different kind of water, probably the kind of water which he said to this woman. Remember this, this woman at the well? He approached her, and it was kind of a water issue as well, and he said, if you knew the gift of God, and who it was who, who asked you, give me some water, uh, you would have asked him for some, and he would give you living water. It's a totally different kind of water. See, the biblical word for this place of, of heart, mind, um, rest is contentment, not wanting, not, not in this constant state of want. So Psalm 23, it's, it's not an injunction against ever wanting, don't ever want anything, we're hardwired to want, but it's, it's the first things first. It's God first. Put God at the center, and all the other things just kind of seem to like fall into place. So here's one question. How, how do we distinguish between appropriate desire and um, not this concept of living in this constant state of want here? I think, I think when there's an accompanying thought to the things that you want that goes something like this. Um, when I finally have that i'll be good when i finally have that i'll be happy when, when i finally have that i'll be satisfied when i finally have that it, it you know what i mean it's a sense of like when i man when i just get that thing it'll all be good um the film director you guys know the name uh sydney pollock he directed movies like uh, out of africa um tootsie the firm he's got like 36 films under his belt. He, he, he starred in a number of uh, movies as well, 36 movies under his belt. Um, and he just passed away a few years ago. And it was really interesting, not, not long before he died, th there was an article written about his, his inability to slow down and enjoy the, the final years of his life with his loved ones. And so even though like the, 
the pace of, of filmmaking was like wearing him down, body and mind in so many ways. This process was wearing him down. Listen to his language. He said, every time I finish a picture, I feel like I've done what I'm supposed to do in the sense that I've earned my stay for another year or so. But see, it didn't work. I mean, it didn't like last. He just had to start over again. He, he was never fully satisfied. Um, as Tim Keller puts it in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says, the human heart is an idol factory. It's like we're made to desire, um, but the reality is the human heart is not made primarily to possess things or something. The human heart is made to be possessed by something, something bigger, something grander. And when that something is too small, our heart suffocates. And the only way to break that, to, to, to not live in want, this biblical concept, is, is to make God one shepherd. To say he is, he's this cosmic shepherd of my life. But see, here's the rub. Ever since, uh, ever since Genesis 3, the fall, the garden, Adam and Eve rebellion, there was this little seed like of suspicion planted in our heart. Does God really really have my best intentions in mind, you know? Does he, does he really know the best way to go? Does he really know the best places to pasture? Does he really know the things that I need to be protected from? Does he really know? Because that was the original question that was, that was kind of thrown out to our first parents, right? God's holding back on you. The reason he doesn't want you to do this is because he's, you know, he doesn't want you to have what he has. See, if you just had that, you'd, you'd have all your needs met. Really, there's where the want creeps in. Not the healthy want, but this state of living in want. So this, this might beg the question, um, what right does he have to lead us? I think that's always been our question, hasn't it? Even when we're not bold enough to answer it. What right does he have to lead us? Remember we said um, that the grouping of the Psalms has some significance to it as far as like where Psalms are placed and all that. Well, as an answer for this, I, th I think we can find a little bit of an answer even in the two psalms that, that sandwich Psalm 23. Psalm 22 that comes before it and Psalm 24 that comes after it. See, the shepherd psalm, Psalm 23, follows, follows the psalm um, to the cross. Um, 22, which is what Jesus quotes on the cross, if you remember, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes the first line, calling into the mind of the listener the entire psalm, these words, a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. See, we have to experience and know the value of the bloodshed on the cross and see this, this sword raised against the great shepherd before we can really know the beauty of his care that's, that's talked about in Psalm 23. Psalm 22 is the good shepherd dying for his sheep. Jesus, many years later, in John 10, 11, said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And in Psalm 24, the other side, this is the chief shepherd coming for his sheep in glory. Listen to how it puts it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, 
that the king of glory may come in. It's a picture of the king coming back, the return of the king. And many years later, one of Jesus' followers, Peter, 1 Peter 5, writes, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. See, it's for this reason that Jesus can say he is the good shepherd. Do you remember uh, the very first shepherd recorded in the Bible? Abel, right? Um, Abel was killed by his brother, and we're told that his shed blood on the ground uh, cried out to God for justice. And almost surprisingly, as we read that story, um, Cain murders Abel, and, and God withheld justice from Cain, didn't he? Because you see, one day, another shepherd would come, the last shepherd. He would be killed by his brothers as well. And his shed blood would pay for all that injustice, pay for all of my injustice. That's, that's what we celebrate every week as we take communion. See, God would not take on a flock. God would not take on a family unless he intended to be so bound up with that family that what we deserve, he takes, and what's true of him, he gives to us. This is this rich picture of kingdom living that I have to ask myself, if, have I allowed God to shepherd me? To what degree am I allowing God to shepherd me in my life? And here's what I'd like to do. I'd like us just to spend a couple minutes in prayer, and then, and then we're just going to take a little bit of time after just kind of to be together, hang out. Um, would you please stand with me? And I want us to think about this, this year coming up, okay? Like, we're January. I mean, we're, we're just right at the start, right at the cusp. <clears throat> a lot of us think about new things we want to do, whether it be goals or priorities or whatever it might be. I want to ask you, would you at this moment with me, because this is, I mean, this is what I want to do, and I don't think I do the best job of it always, is dedicate myself, ask God to shepherd me in this new year, not just over the next five weeks as we go through this study, but to really shepherd me all of this year. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we ask, God, that, that you would, in a, in a powerful way, God, that you would allow us to trust you, Allow us to put our hope and our confidence, God, not in, not in self, not in the relationships, not in the positions, not in the power, not in the stuff, but to put our hope in this God who would step out, who would lay down his very life for us and, and, and stand in a place, God, of calling us to better grounds. That's where we want to be, God. And whatever that road involves, difficulties, valleys. We want to go there because, God, we want a, a renewed confidence that you really have our best interest in mind. And Father, I pray for those of us who would say, in this new year, uh, I need to be shepherded by God. And if I were to live my life in that context, I would really have to make some different decisions, and maybe this is a perfect time to do it, to commit my life to say, I will live differently. My relationships will look different. My reactions my emotions and thoughts, all those things will, will live in the context of your lordship as shepherd. And I'll land before you every morning when I start. At the end of the day, I'll, I'll land before you again, and I'll ask you to make me new. Maybe it's a person who would say, I need to be in the scriptures this new year. 
I need to commit myself to be in the presence of the shepherd, to be able to hear your voice, to learn what it sounds like when you call. That is our desire. That's where we want to be. God, thank you that these are prayers that we have no doubt that you answer yes to, always. And so we thank you for that. God, thank you for this community. Thank you for the calling in our lives. God, help us to not be only inward focused, but that we would be outward focused. God, that we would be tools in your hands to transform a broken, dying world that does not know the good shepherd. Help us to live a new life, God. We thank you. And we pray this in the name of our, our shepherd king, Jesus. And we all said together, amen.